the Rowan Tree Collection. Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen Chapter 7 Barton Park was about half a mile from the cottage. The ladies had passed near it in their way along the valley, but it was screened from their view at home by the projection of a hill. The house was large and handsome, and the Middletons lived in a style of equal hospitality and elegance. The former was for Sir John's gratification, the latter for that of his lady. They were scarcely ever without some friends staying with them in the house, and they kept more company of every kind than any other family in the neighborhood. It was necessary to the happiness of both, for however dissimilar in temper and outward behavior, they strongly resembled each other in that total want of talent and taste which confined their employments, unconnected with such as society produced, within a very narrow compass. Sir John was a sportsman, Lady Middleton a mother. He hunted and shot, and she humored her children, and these were their only resources. Lady Middleton had the advantage of being able to spoil her children all the year round, while Sir John's independent employments were in existence only half the time. Continual engagements at home and abroad, however, supplied all the deficiencies of nature and education, supported the good spirits of Sir John, and gave exercise to the good breeding of his wife. Lady Middleton piqued herself upon the elegance of her table, and of all her domestic arrangements, and from this kind of vanity was her greatest enjoyment in any of their parties. But Sir John's satisfaction in society was much more real. He delighted in collecting about him more young people than his house would hold, and the noisier they were, the better was he pleased. He was a blessing to all the juvenile part of the neighborhood, for in summer he was forever forming parties to eat cold ham and chicken out of doors, and in winter his private halls were numerous enough for any young lady who was not suffering under the insatiable appetite of fifteen. The arrival of a new family in the country was always a matter of joy to him, and in every point of view he was charmed with the inhabitants he had now procured for his cottage at Barton. The Miss Dashwoods were young, pretty, and unaffected. For to be unaffected was all that a pretty girl could want to make her mind as captivating as her person. The friendliness of his disposition made him happy in accommodating those whose situation might be considered in comparison with the past as unfortunate. In showing kindness to his cousins, therefore, he had the real satisfaction of a good heart, and in settling a family of females only in his cottage, he had all the satisfaction of a sportsman. For a sportsman, though he esteems only those of his sex who are sportsmen likewise, is not often desirous of encouraging their taste by admitting them to a residence within his own manor. Mrs. Dashwood and her daughters were met at the door of the house by Sir John, who welcomed them to Barton Park with unaffected sincerity, and as he attended them to the drawing-room, repeated to the young ladies the concern which the same subject had drawn from him the day before, and being unable to get any smart young men to meet them. They would see, he said, only one gentleman there besides himself, a particular friend who was staying at the park, but who was neither very young nor very gay. He hoped they would all excuse the smallness of the party and could assure them it should never happen so again. He had been to several families that morning in hopes of procuring some addition to their number, but it was moonlight and everybody was full of engagements. Luckily, Lady Middleton's mother had arrived at Barton within the last hour, and as she was a very cheerful, agreeable woman, he hoped the young ladies would not find it so very dull as they might imagine. The young ladies, as well as their mother, were perfectly satisfied with having two entire strangers of the party, and wished for no more. Mrs. Jennings, Lady Middleton's mother, was a good-humored, merry, fat, elderly woman, who talked a great deal, seemed very happy and rather vulgar. 
She was full of jokes and laughter, and before dinner was over had said many witty things on the subject of lovers and husbands, hoped they had not left their hearts behind them in Sussex, and pretended to see them blush, whether they did or not. Marianne was vexed at it for her sister's sake, and turned her eyes towards Eleanor to see how she bore these attacks, with an earnestness which gave Eleanor far more pain than could arise from such commonplace raillery as Mrs. Jennings. Colonel Brandon, the friend of Sir John, seemed no more adapted by resemblance of manner to be his friend than Lady Middleton was to be his wife, or Mrs. Jennings to be Lady Middleton's mother. He was silent and grave. His appearance, however, was not unpleasing. In spite of his being, in the opinion of Marion and Margaret, an absolute old bachelor, for he was on the wrong side of five and thirty. But though his face was not handsome, his countenance was sensible and his address was particularly gentlemanlike. There was nothing in any of the party which could recommend them as companions to the Dashwoods, but the cold insipidity of Lady Middleton was so particularly repulsive that in comparison of it, the gravity of Colonel Brandon, and even the boisterous mirth of Sir John and his mother-in-law, was interesting. Lady Middleton seemed to be roused to enjoyment only by the entrance of her four noisy children after dinner, who pulled her about, tore her clothes, and put an end to every kind of discourse except what was related to themselves. In the evening, as Marianne was discovered to be musical, she was invited to play. The instrument was unlocked, everybody prepared to be charmed, and Marianne, who sang very well, at their request went through the chief of the songs which Lady Middleton had brought into the family on her marriage and which perhaps had lain ever since in the same position on the pianoforte, for her ladyship had celebrated that event by giving up music. Although by her mother's account, she had played extremely well, and by her own was very fond of it. Marianne's performance was highly applauded. Sir John was loud in his admiration at the end of every song, and as loud in his conversation with the others while every song lasted. Lady Middleton frequently called him to order, wondered how anyone's attention could be diverted from music for a moment, and asked Marianne to sing a particular song which Marianne had just finished. Colonel Brandon alone of all the party heard her without being in raptures. He paid her only the compliment of attention, and she felt a respect for him on the occasion which the others had reasonably forfeited by their shameless want of taste. His pleasure in music, though it amounted not to that ecstatic delight which alone could sympathize with her own, was estimable when contrasted against the horrible insensibility of the others, and she was reasonable enough to allow that a man of five-and-thirty might well have outlived all acuteness of feeling and every exquisite power of enjoyment. She was perfectly disposed to make every allowance for the colonel's advanced state of life which humanity required. Chapter 8 Mrs. Jennings was a widow with an ample jointure. She had only two daughters, both of whom she had lived to see respectably married, and she had now therefore nothing to do but to marry all the rest of the world. In the promotion of this object she was zealously active, as far as her ability reached, and missed no opportunity of projecting weddings among all the young people of her acquaintance. She was remarkably quick in the discovery of attachments, and had enjoyed the advantage of raising the blushes and the vanity of many a young lady by insinuations of her power over such a young man. And this kind of discernment enabled her soon after her arrival at Barton decisively to pronounce that Colonel Brandon was very much in love with Marianne Dashwood. She rather suspected it to be so, on the very first evening of their being together, from his listening so attentively while she sang to them. And when the visit was returned by the Middletons dining at the cottage, the fact was ascertained by his listening to her again. It must be so. 
She was perfectly convinced of it. It would be an excellent match, for he was rich and she was handsome. Mrs. Jennings had been anxious to see Colonel Brandon well married, ever since her connection with Sir John first brought him to her knowledge, and she was always anxious to get a good husband for every pretty girl. The immediate advantage to herself was by no means inconsiderable, for it supplied her with endless jokes against them both. At the park, she laughed at the colonel, and in the cottage at Marianne. To the former, her raillery was probably, as far as it regarded only himself, perfectly indifferent. But to the latter, it was at first incomprehensible, and when its object was understood, she hardly knew whether most to laugh at its absurdity or censure its impertinence, for she considered it as an unfeeling reflection on the colonel's advanced years and on his forlorn condition as an old bachelor. Mrs. Dashwood, who could not think a man five years younger than herself, so exceedingly ancient as he appeared to the youthful fancy of her daughter, ventured to clear Mrs. Jennings from the probability of wishing to throw ridicule on his age. But at least, Mama, you cannot deny the absurdity of the accusation, though you may not think it intentionally ill-natured. Colonel Brandon is certainly younger than Mrs. Jennings, but he is old enough to be my father, and if he were ever animated enough to be in love, must have long outlived every sensation of the kind. It is too ridiculous. When is a man to be safe from such wit, if age and infirmity will not protect him? Infirmity, said Eleanor. Do you call Colonel Brandon infirm? I can easily suppose that his age may appear much greater to you than to my mother, but you can hardly deceive yourself as to his having the use of his limbs. Did you not hear him complain of the rheumatism? And is not that the commonest infirmity of declining life? My dearest child, said her mother, laughing, at this rate you must be in continual terror of my decay and it must seem to you a miracle that my life has been extended to the advanced age of forty. Mama, you are not doing me justice. I know very well that Colonel Brandon is not old enough to make his friends yet apprehensive of losing him in the course of nature. He may live twenty years longer, but thirty-five has nothing to do with matrimony. Perhaps, said Eleanor, thirty-five and seventeen had better not have anything to do with matrimony together. But if there should by any chance happen to be a woman who is single at seven and twenty, I should not think Colonel Brandon's being thirty-five any objection to his marrying her. A woman of seven and twenty, said Marianne, after pausing a moment, can never hope to feel or inspire affection again. And if her home be uncomfortable or her fortune small, I can suppose that she might bring herself to submit to the offices of a nurse, for the sake of the provision and security of a wife. In his marrying such a woman, therefore, there would be nothing unsuitable. It would be a compact of convenience, and the world would be satisfied. In my eyes, it would be no marriage at all, but that would be nothing. To me, it would seem only a commercial exchange in which each wished to be benefited at the expense of the other. It would be impossible, I know, replied Eleanor, to convince you that a woman of seven and twenty could feel for a man of thirty-five anything near enough to love to make him a desirable companion to her. 
but I must object to your dooming Colonel Brandon and his wife to the constant confinement of a sick chamber, merely because he chanced to complain yesterday, a very cold, damp day, of a slight rheumatic feel in one of his shoulders. But he talked of flannel waistcoats, said Marianne, and with me a flannel waistcoat is invariably connected with aches, cramps, rheumatisms, and every species of ailment that can afflict the old and the feeble. Had you been only in a violent fever, you would not have despised him half so much. Confess, Marianne, is not there something interesting to you in the flesh, cheek, hollow eye, and quick pulse of a fever? Soon after this, upon Eleanor's leaving the room, Mama, said Marianne, I have an alarm on the subject of illness which I cannot conceal from you. I am sure Edward Ferrers is not well. We have now been here almost a fortnight, and yet he does not come. Nothing but real indisposition could occasion this extraordinary delay. What else can detain him at Norland? Had you any idea of his coming so soon? said Mrs. Dashwood. I had none. On the contrary, if I have felt any anxiety at all on the subject, it has been in recollecting that he sometimes showed a want of pleasure and readiness in accepting my invitation when I talked of his coming to Barton. Does Eleanor expect him already? I have never mentioned it to her, but of course she must. I rather think you are mistaken, for when I was talking to her yesterday of getting a new grate for the spare bedchamber, she observed that there was no immediate hurry for it, as it was not likely that the room would be wanted for some time. How strange this is! What can be the meaning of it? But the whole of their behavior to each other has been unaccountable. How cold, how composed were their last adieus! How languid their conversation the last evening of their being together! In Edward's farewell there was no distinction between Eleanor and me. It was the good wishes of an affectionate brother to both. Twice! did I leave them purposely together in the course of the last morning, and each time did he most accountably follow me out of the room. And Eleanor, in quitting Norland and Edward, cried not as I did. Even now her self-command is invariable. When is she dejected or melancholy? When does she try to avoid society or appear restless and dissatisfied in it? Chapter 9 the Dashwoods were now saddled at Barton with tolerable comfort to themselves. The house and the garden, with all the objects surrounding them, were now become familiar, and the ordinary pursuits which had given to Norland half its charms were engaged in again with far greater enjoyment than Norland had been able to afford since the loss of their father. Sir John Middleton, who called on them every day for the first fortnight, and who was not in the habit of seeing much occupation at home, could not conceal his amazement on finding them always employed. Their visitors, except those from Barton Park, were not many, for, in spite of John's urgent entreaties that they would mix more in the neighborhood, and repeated assurances of his carriage being always at their service, the independence of Mrs. Dashwood's spirit overcame the wish of society for her children, and she was resolute in declining to visit any family beyond the distance of a walk. There were but few who could be so classed, and it was not all of them that were attainable. About a mile and a half from the cottage along the narrow winding valley of the Allenham, which issued from that of Barton, as formerly described, the girls had, in one of their earliest walks, discovered an ancient, respectable-looking mansion, which, by reminding them a little of Norland, interested their imagination and made them wish to be better acquainted with it. 
but they learnt on inquiry that its possessor, an elderly lady of very good character, was unfortunately too infirm to mix with the world, and never stirred from home. The whole country about them bounded in beautiful walks. The high downs, which invited them from almost every window of the cottage to seat the exquisite enjoyment of air on their summits, were a happy alternative when the dirt of the valleys beneath shut up their superior beauties. And towards one of these hills did Marianne and Margaret one memorable morning direct their steps, attracted by the partial sunshine of a showery sky, and unable longer to bear the confinement which the settled rain of the two preceding days had occasioned. The weather was not tempting enough to draw the two others from their pencil and their book, in spite of Marianne's declaration that the day would be lastingly fair and that every threatening cloud would be drawn off from their hills. And the two girls set off together. They gaily ascended the downs, rejoicing in their own penetration at every glimpse of blue sky. And when they caught in their faces the animating gales of a high southwesterly wind, they pitied the fears which had prevented their mother and Eleanor from sharing such delightful sensations. Is there a felicity in the world, said Marianne, superior to this? Margaret, we will walk here at least two hours. Margaret agreed, and they pursued their way against the wind, resisting it with laughing delight for about twenty minutes longer, when suddenly the clouds united over their heads and a driving rain set full in their face. Chagrined and surprised, they were obliged, though unwillingly, to turn back, for no shelter was nearer than their own house. One consolation, however, remained for them, to which the exigence of the moment gave more than usual propriety. It was that of running with all possible speed down the steep side of the hill which led immediately to their garden gate. They set off. Marianne had at first the advantage, but a false step brought her suddenly to the ground, and Margaret, unable to stop herself to assist her, was involuntarily hurried along and reached the bottom in safety. A gentleman carrying a gun with two pointers playing round him was passing up the hill and within a few yards of Marianne when her accident happened. He put down his gun and ran to her assistance. She had raised herself from the ground, but her foot had been twisted in her fall and she was scarcely able to stand. The gentleman offered his services, and perceiving that her modesty declined what her situation rendered necessary, took her up in his arms without further delay and carried her down the hill. Then, passing through the garden, the gate of which had been left open by Margaret, he bore her directly into the house, whither Margaret was just arrived, and quitted not his hold till he had seated her in a chair in the parlour. Eleanor and her mother rose up in amazement at their entrance, and while the eyes of both were fixed on him with an evident wonder and a secret admiration which equally sprung from his appearance, he apologized for his intrusion by relating his cause, in a manner so frank and so graceful that his person, which was uncommonly handsome, received additional charms from his voice and expression. Had he been even old, ugly, and vulgar, the gratitude and kindness of Mrs. Dashwood would have been secured by any act of attention to her child. But the influence of youth, beauty, and elegance gave an interest to the action which came home to her feelings. She thanked him again and again, and with a sweetness of address which always attended her, invited him to be seated. But this he declined, as he was dirty and wet. Mrs. Dashwood then begged to know to whom she was obliged. His name, he replied, was Willoughby and his present home was at Allenham, from whence he hoped she would allow him the honour of calling to-morrow to inquire after Miss Dashwood. The honour was readily granted, and he then departed to make himself still more interesting in the midst of a heavy rain. 
His manly beauty and more than common gracefulness were instantly the theme of general admiration, and the laugh which his gallantry raised against Marianne received particular spirit from its exterior attractions. Marianne herself had seen less of his person than the rest, for the confusion which crimsoned over her face on his lifting her up had robbed her of the power of regarding him after their entering the house. But she had seen enough of him to join in all the admiration of the others, with an energy which always adorned her praise. His person and air were equal to what her fancy had ever drawn for the hero of a favorite story, and in his carrying her into the house with so little previous formality, there was a rapidity of thought which particularly recommended the action to her. Every circumstance belonging to him was interesting. His name was good. His residence was in their favorite village, and she soon found out that of all manly dresses, a shooting jacket was the most becoming. Her imagination was busy, her reflections were pleasant, and the pain of a sprained ankle was disregarded. Sir John called on them as soon as the next interval of fair weather that morning allowed him to get out of doors, and Marianne's accident being related to him, he was eagerly asked whether he knew of any gentleman of the name of Willoughby at Allenham. Willoughby? cried Sir John. What is he in the country? That is good news, however. I will ride over tomorrow and ask him to dinner on Thursday. You know him, then, said Mrs. Dashwood. Know him? To be sure I do. Why, he is down here every year. And what sort of a young man is he? As good a kind of fellow as ever lived, I assure you. A very decent shot, and there is not a bolder rider in England. And is that all you can say for him? cried Marianne indignantly. But what are his manners on more intimate acquaintance? What his pursuits, his talents, and genius? Sir John was rather puzzled. Upon my soul, said he, I do not know much about him as to all that, but he is a pleasant, good-humoured fellow, and has got the nicest little black bitch of a pointer I ever saw. Was she out with him today? But Marianne could no more satisfy him as to the colour of Mr. Willoughby's pointer than he could describe to her the shades of his mind. But who is he? said Eleanor. Where does he come from? Has he a house in Allenham? On this point, Sir John could give more certain intelligence, and he told them that Mr. Willoughby had no property of his own in the country, that he resided there only while he was visiting the old lady at Allenham Court, to whom he was related, and whose possessions he was to inherit, adding, Yes, yes, he is very well worth catching, I can tell you, Miss Dashwood. He has a pretty little estate of his own in Somersetshire besides, and if I were you, I would not give him up to my younger sister, in spite of all this tumbling down hills. Miss Marianne must not expect to have all the men to herself. Brandon will be jealous if she does not take care. I do not believe, said Mrs. Dashwood with a good-humoured smile, that Mr. Willoughby will be incommoded by the attempts of either of my daughters towards what you call catching him. It is not an employment to which they have been brought up. Men are very safe with us, let them be ever so rich. I am glad to find, however, from what you say, that he is a respectable young man, and one whose acquaintance will not be ineligible. He is as good a sort of fellow, I believe, as ever lived, repeated Sir John. I remember last Christmas at a little hop at the park. He danced from eight o'clock till four without once sitting down. Did he indeed? cried Marianne with sparkling eyes. 
And with elegance? With spirit? Yes, and he was up again at eight to ride to Comert. That is what I like. That is what a young man ought to be. Whatever be his pursuits, his eagerness in them should know no moderation and leave him no sense of fatigue. Aye, I, I see how it will be, said Sir John. I see how it will be. You will be setting your cap at him now and never think of poor Brandon. That is an expression, Sir John, said Marianne warmly, which I particularly dislike. I abhor every commonplace phrase by which wit is intended, and setting one's cap at a man, or making a conquest, are the most odious of all. Their tendency is gross and illiberal, and if their construction could ever be deemed clever, time has long ago destroyed all its ingenuity. Sir John did not much understand this reproof, but he laughed as heartily as if he did, and then replied, "'Aye, you will make conquests enough, I dare say, one way or another.' Poor Brandon, he is quite smitten already, and he is very well worth setting your cap at, I can tell you, in spite of all this tumbling about and spraining of ankles. Chapter 10 Marianne's preserver, as Margaret, with more elegance than precision, styled Willoughby, called at the cottage early the next morning to make his personal inquiries. He was received by Mrs. Dashwood with more than politeness, with a kindness which Sir John's account of him and her own gratitude prompted and everything that passed during the visit tended to assure him of the sense, elegance, mutual affection, and domestic comfort of the family to whom accident had now introduced him. Of their personal charms, he had not required a second interview to be convinced. Miss Dashwood had a delicate complexion, regular features, and a remarkably pretty figure. Marianne was still handsomer. Her form, though not so correct as her sister's in having the advantage of height, was more striking and her face was so lovely that when in the common cant of praise she was called a beautiful girl, truth was less violently outraged than usually happens. Her skin was very brown, but from its transparency, her complexion was uncommonly brilliant. Her features were all good, her smile was sweet and attractive, and in her eyes, which were very dark, there was a life, a spirit, an eagerness, which could hardly be seen without delight. From Willoughby, their expression was at first held back by the embarrassment which the remembrance of his assistance created. But when this passed away, when her spirits became collected, when she saw that to the perfect good breeding of the gentleman he united frankness and vivacity, and above all, when she heard him declare that of music and dancing he was passionately fond, she gave him such a look of approbation as secured the largest share of his discourse to herself for the rest of his stay. It was only necessary to mention any favorite amusement to engage her to talk. She could not be silent when such points were introduced, and she had neither shyness nor reserve in their discussion. They speedily discovered that their enjoyment of dancing and music was mutual, and that it arose from a general conformity of judgment in all that related to either. Encouraged by this to a further examination of his opinions, she proceeded to question him on the subject of books. Her favorite authors were brought forward and dwelt upon with so rapturous a delight that any young man of five and twenty must have been insensible indeed not to become an immediate convert to the excellence of such works, however disregarded before. Their taste was strikingly alike. The same books, the same passages, were idolized by each, or if any difference appeared, any objection arose, it lasted no longer than till the force of her arguments and the brightness of her eyes could be displayed. 
He acquiesced in all her decisions, caught all her enthusiasm, and long before his visit concluded, they conversed with the familiarity of a long-established acquaintance. "'Well, Marianne,' said Eleanor as soon as he had left them, "'for one morning I think you have done pretty well. You have already ascertained Mr. Willoughby's opinion in almost every matter of importance.' You know what he thinks of Cowper and Scott, you are certain of his estimating their beauties as he ought, and you have received every assurance of his admiring Pope no more than is proper. But how was your acquaintance to be long supported under such extraordinary dispatch of every subject for discourse? You will soon have exhausted each favorite topic. Another meeting will suffice to explain his sentiments on picturesque beauty and second marriages, and then you have nothing farther to ask. Eleanor, cried Marianne, is this fair? Is this just? Are my ideas so scanty? But I see what you mean. I have been too much at my ease, too happy, too frank. I have erred against every commonplace notion of decorum. I have been open and sincere where I ought to have been reserved, spiritless, dull, and deceitful. Had I talked only of the weather and the roads, and had I spoken only once in ten minutes, this reproach would have been spared. My love, said her mother, you must not be offended with Eleanor. She was only in jest. I should scold her myself if she were capable of wishing to check the delight of your conversation with our new friend. Marianne was softened in a moment. Willoughby, on his side, gave every proof of his pleasure in their acquaintance, which an evident wish of improving it could offer. He came to them every day. To inquire after Marianne was at first his excuse, but the encouragement of his reception, to which every day gave greater kindness, made such an excuse unnecessary, before it had ceased to be possible, by Marianne's perfect recovery. She was confined for some days to the house, but never had any confinement been less irksome. Willoughby was a young man of good abilities, quick imagination, lively spirits, and open, affectionate manners. He was exactly formed to engage Marianne's heart. For with all this, he joined not only a captivating person, but a natural ardor of mind, which was now roused and increased by the example of her own, and which recommended him to her affection beyond everything else. His society became gradually her most exquisite enjoyment. They read, they talked, they sang together, his musical talents were considerable, and he read with all the sensibility and spirit which Edward had unfortunately wanted. In Mrs. Dashwood's estimation, he was as faultless as in Marianne's, and Eleanor saw nothing to censure in him but a propensity in which he strongly resembled and peculiarly delighted her sister, but saying too much what he thought on every occasion without attention to persons or circumstances, in hastily forming and giving his opinion of other people, in sacrificing general politeness to the enjoyment of undivided attention where his heart was engaged and in slighting too easily the forms of worldly propriety, he displayed a want of caution which Eleanor could not approve, in spite of all that he and Marianne could say in its support. Marianne began now to perceive that the desperation which had seized her at sixteen and a half of ever seeing a man who could satisfy her ideas of perfection had been rash and unjustifiable. Willoughby was all that her fancy had delineated in that unhappy hour, and in every brighter period, as capable of attaching her and his behavior declared his wishes to be in that respect as earnest, as his abilities were strong. Her mother, too, in whose mind not one speculative thought of their marriage had been raised by his prospect of riches, was led before the end of the week to hope and expect it, and secretly to congratulate herself on having gained two such sons-in-law as Edward and Willoughby. Colonel Brandon's partiality for Marianne, which had so early been discovered by his friends, 
now first became perceptible to Eleanor when it ceased to be noticed by them. Their attention and wit were drawn off to his more fortunate rival, and the raillery which the other had incurred before any partiality arose was removed when his feelings began really to call for the ridicule so justly annexed to sensibility. Eleanor was obliged, though unwillingly, to believe that the sentiments which Mrs. Jennings had assigned him for her own satisfaction were now actually excited by her sister, and that however a general resemblance of disposition between the parties might forward the affection of Mr. Willoughby, an equally striking opposition of character was no hindrance to the regard of Colonel Brandon. She saw it with concern, for what could a silent man of five-and-thirty hope when opposed to a very lively one of five-and-twenty? And as she could not even wish him successful, she heartily wished him indifferent. She liked him, in spite of his gravity and reserve. She beheld in him an object of interest. His manners, though serious, were mild, and his reserve appeared rather the result of some oppression of spirits than of any natural gloominess of temper. Sir John had dropped hints of past injuries and disappointments, which justified her belief of his being an unfortunate man, and she regarded him with respect and compassion. Perhaps she pitied and esteemed him the more because he was slighted by Willoughby and Marianne, who, prejudiced against him for being neither lively nor young, seemed resolved to undervalue his merits. "'Brandon is just the kind of man,' said Willoughby one day when they were talking of him together, "'whom everybody speaks well of and nobody cares about, whom all are delighted to see and nobody remembers to talk to.' "'That is exactly what I think of him,' cried Marianne. "'Do not boast of it, however,' said Eleanor, "'for it is injustice in both of you. "'He is highly esteemed by all the family at the park, "'and I never see him myself without taking pains to converse with him.' "'That he is patronized by you,' replied Willoughby, "'is certainly in his favour, "'but as for the esteem of the others, it is a reproach in itself. "'Who would submit to the indignity of being approved by such a woman as Lady Middleton and Mrs. Jennings that could command the indifference of anybody else. But perhaps the abuse of such people as yourself and Marianne will make amends for the regard of Lady Middleton and her mother. If their praise is censure, your censure may be praise, for they are not more undiscerning than you are prejudiced and unjust. In defense of your protege, you can even be saucy. My protege, as you call him, is a sensible man, and sense will always have attractions for me. Yes, Marianne, even in a man between thirty and forty. He has seen a great deal of the world, has been abroad, has read, and has a thinking mind. I have found him capable of giving me much information on various subjects, and he has always answered my inquiries with readiness of good breeding and good nature. That is to say, cried Marianne contemptuously, he has told you that in the East Indies the climate is hot and the mosquitoes are troublesome. He would have told me so, I doubt not, had I made any such inquiries, but they happened to be points on which I had been previously informed. Perhaps, said Willoughby, his observations may have extended to the existence of nabobs, gold moors, and palanquins. May venture to say that his observations have stretched much further than your candor. But why should you dislike him? I do not dislike him. I consider him, on the contrary, as a very respectable man, who is everybody's good word and nobody's notice, who has more money than he can spend, more time than he knows how to employ, and two new coats every year. Add to which, cried Marianne, that he has neither genius, taste, nor spirit. 
but his understanding has no brilliancy, his feelings no ardor, and his voice no expression. You decide on his imperfections so much in the mass, replied Eleanor, and so much on the strength of your own imagination, that the commendation I am able to give of him is comparatively cold and insipid. I can only pronounce him to be a sensible man, well-bred, well-informed, of gentle address, and I believe possessing an amiable heart. Miss Dashwood, cried Willoughby, you are now using me unkindly. You are endeavouring to disarm me by reason and to convince me against my will. And it will not do. You shall find me as stubborn as you can be artful. I have three unanswerable reasons for disliking Colonel Brandon. He threatened me with rain when I wanted it to be fine. He has found fault with the hanging of my curricle, and I cannot persuade him to buy my brown mare. If it will be any satisfaction to you, however, to be told that I believe his character to be in other respects irreproachable, I am ready to confess it. And in return for an acknowledgment, which must give me some pain, you cannot deny me the privilege of disliking him as much as ever. Chapter 11 Little had Mrs. Dashwood or her daughters imagined when they first came into Devonshire that so many engagements would arise to occupy their time as shortly presented themselves, or that they should have such frequent visitations and such constant visitors as to leave them little leisure for serious employment. Yet such was the case. When Marianne was recovered, the schemes of amusement at home and abroad which Sir John had been previously forming were put into execution. The private balls at the park then began, and parties on the water were made and accomplished as often as a showery October would allow. In every meeting of the kind, Willoughby was included, and the ease and familiarity which naturally attended these parties were exactly calculated to give increasing intimacy to his acquaintance with the Dashwoods, to afford him opportunity of witnessing the excellencies of Marianne, of marking his animated admiration of her, and of receiving, in her behavior to himself, the most pointed assurance of her affection. Eleanor could not be surprised at their attachment. She only wished that it were less openly shown, and once or twice did venture to suggest the propriety of some self-command to Marianne. But Marianne abhorred all concealment where no real disgrace could attend on reserve, and to aim at the restraint of sentiments which were not in themselves laudable appeared to her not merely an unnecessary effort, but a disgraceful subjection of reason to commonplace and mistaken notions. Willoughby thought the same, and their behavior at all times was an illustration of their opinions. When he was present, she had no eyes for anyone else. Everything he did was right. Everything he said was clever. If their evenings at the park were concluded with cards, he cheated himself and all the rest of the party to get her a good hand. If dancing formed the amusement of the night, they were partners for half the time, and when obliged to separate for a couple of dances, were careful to stand together and scarcely spoke a word to anybody else. Such conduct made them, of course, most exceedingly laughed at, but ridicule could not shame, and seemed hardly to provoke them. Mrs. Dashwood entered into all their feelings with a warmth which left her no inclination for checking this excessive display of them. To her it was but the natural consequence of a strong affection in a young and ardent mind. This was a season of happiness to Marianne. Her heart was devoted to Willoughby, and the fond attachment to Norland which she brought with her from Sussex was more likely to be softened than she had thought it possible before by the charms which his society bestowed on her present home. Eleanor's happiness was not so great. Her heart was not so much at ease, nor her satisfaction in their amusement so pure. 
They afforded her no companion that could make amends for what she had left behind, nor that could teach her to think of Norland with less regret than ever. Neither Lady Middleton nor Mrs. Jennings could supply to her the conversation she missed, although the latter was an everlasting talker and from the first had regarded her with a kindness which ensured her a large share of her discourse. She had already repeated her own history to Eleanor three or four times, and had Eleanor's memory been equal to her means of improvement, she might have known very early in their acquaintance all the particulars of Mr. Jennings' last illness and what he said to his wife a few minutes before he died. Lady Middleton was more agreeable than her mother only in being more silent. Eleanor needed little observation that her reserve was a mere calmness of manner with which sense had nothing to do. Towards her husband and her mother, she was the same as to them and intimacy was therefore neither to be looked for nor desired. She had nothing to say one day that she had not said the day before. Her insipidity was invariable, for even her spirits were always the same. And though she did not oppose the parties arranged by her husband, provided everything were conducted in style and her two eldest children attended her, she never appeared to receive more enjoyment from them than she might have experienced in sitting at home. And so little did her presence add to the pleasure of the others by any share in their conversation, that they were sometimes only reminded of her being amongst them by her solicitude about her troublesome boys. In Colonel Brandon alone, of all her new acquaintance, did Eleanor find a person who could in any degree claim the respect of abilities, excite the interest of friendship, or give pleasure as a companion. Willoughby was out of the question. Her admiration and regard, even her sisterly regard, was all his own, but he was a lover. His attentions were wholly Marianne's, and a far less agreeable man might have been more generally pleasing. Colonel Brandon, unfortunately for himself, had no such encouragement to think only of Marianne, and in conversing with Eleanor he found the greatest consolation for the indifference of her sister. Eleanor's compassion for him increased, as she had reason to suspect that the misery of disappointed love had already been known to him. This suspicion was given by some words which accidentally dropped from him one evening at the park, when they were sitting down together by mutual consent while the others were dancing. His eyes were fixed on Marianne, and after a silence of some minutes, he said with a faint smile, Your sister, I understand, does not approve of second attachments. No, replied Eleanor. Her opinions are all romantic. Or rather, as I believe, she considers them impossible to exist. I believe she does. But how she contrives it without reflecting on the character of her own father, who had himself two wives, I know not. A few years, however, will settle her opinions on the reasonable basis of common sense and observation, and then they may be more easy to define and to justify than they now are by anybody but herself. This will probably be the case, he replied, and yet... There is something so amiable in the prejudices of a young mind that one is sorry to see them give way to the reception of more general opinions. I cannot agree with you there, said Eleanor. There are inconveniences attending such feelings as Marianne's, which all the charms of enthusiasm and ignorance of the world cannot atone for. Her systems have all the unfortunate tendency of setting propriety at naught, and a better acquaintance with the world is what I look forward to as her greatest possible advantage. After a short pause, he resumed the conversation by saying, Does your sister make no distinction in her objections against a second attachment, or is it equally criminal in everybody? Are those who have been disappointed in their first choice, whether from the inconsistency of its object or the perverseness of circumstances, to be equally indifferent during the rest of their lives? 
Upon my word, I'm not acquainted with the minutia of her principles. I only know that I never yet heard her admit any instance of a second attachment's being pardonable. This, said he, cannot hold. But a change, a total change of sentiments, no, no, do not desire it, for when the romantic refinements of a young mind are obliged to give way, how frequently are they succeeded by such opinions as are but too common and too dangerous? I speak from experience. I once knew a lady who in temper and mind greatly resembled your sister, who thought and judged like her, but who, from an enforced change, from a series of unfortunate circumstances, here he stopped suddenly, appeared to think that he had said too much, and by his countenance gave rise to conjectures which might not otherwise have entered Eleanor's head. The lady would probably have passed without suspicion, had he not convinced Miss Dashwood that what it concerned her ought not to escape his lips. As it was, it required but a slight effort of fancy to connect his emotion with the tender recollection of past regard. Eleanor attempted no more, but Marianne, in her place, would not have done so little. The whole story would have been speedily formed under her active imagination, and everything established in the most melancholy order of disastrous love. Chapter 12 as Eleanor and Marianne were walking together the next morning, the latter communicated a piece of news to her sister, which, in spite of all that she knew before of Marianne's imprudence and want of thought, surprised her by its extravagant testimony of both. Marianne told her, with the greatest delight, that Willoughby had given her a horse, one that he had bred himself on his estate in Somersetshire, and which was exactly calculated to carry a woman. Without considering that it was not in her mother's plan to keep any horse, that if she were to alter her resolution in favor of this gift, she must buy another for the servant and keep a servant to ride it, and after all build a stable to receive them, she had accepted the present without hesitation and told her sister of it in raptures. He intends to send his groom into Somersetshire immediately for it, she added, and when it arrives, we will ride it every day. You shall share its use with me. Imagine to yourself, my dear Eleanor, the delight of a gallop on some of those downs. Most unwilling was she to awaken from such a dream of felicity to comprehend all the unhappy truths which attended the affair, and for some time she refused to submit to them. As to an additional servant, the expense would be a trifle. Mamma, she was sure, would never object to it, and any horse would do for him. He might always get one at the park. As to a stable, the merest shed would be sufficient. Eleanor then ventured to doubt the propriety of her receiving such a present from a man so little, or at least so lately, known to her. This was too much. "'You're mistaken, Eleanor,' said she warmly, "'in supposing I know very little of Willoughby. I have not known him long, indeed, but I am much better acquainted with him than I am with any other creature in the world except yourself and Mamma." It is not time or opportunity that is to determine intimacy. It is disposition alone. Seven years would be insufficient to make some people acquainted with each other, and seven days are more than enough for others. I should hold myself guilty of greater impropriety in accepting a horse for my brother than from Willoughby. Of John I know very little, though we have lived together for years. But of Willoughby my judgment has long been formed. Eleanor thought it wisest to touch that point no more. She knew her sister's temper. Opposition on so tender a subject would only attach her the more to her own opinion. But by an appeal to her affection for her mother, by representing the inconveniences which that indulgent mother must draw on herself, if, as would probably be the case, she consented to this increase of establishment, 
Marianne was shortly subdued, and she promised not to tempt her mother to such imprudent kindness by mentioning the offer, and to tell Willoughby when she saw him next that it must be declined. She was faithful to her word, and when Willoughby called at the cottage the same day, Eleanor heard her express her disappointment to him in a low voice, on being obliged to forego the acceptance of his present. The reasons for this alteration were at the same time related, and they were such as to make further entreaty on his side impossible. His concern, however, was very apparent, and after expressing it with earnestness, he added in the same low voice, But, Marianne, the horse is still yours, though you cannot use it now. I shall keep it only till you can claim it. When you leave Barton to form your own establishment in a more lasting home, Queen Mab shall receive you. This was all overheard by Miss Dashwood, and in the whole of the sentence, in his manner of pronouncing it, and in his addressing her sister by her Christian name alone, she instantly saw an intimacy so decided, a meaning so direct, as marked a perfect agreement between them. From that moment she doubted not of their being engaged to each other, and the belief of it created no other surprise than that she, or any of their friends, should be left by temper so frank to discover it by accident. Margaret related something to her the next day which placed this matter in a still clearer light. Willoughby had spent the preceding evening with them, and Margaret, by being left for some time in the parlour with only him and Marianne, had had opportunity for observations, which, with a most important face, she communicated to her eldest sister when they were next by themselves. "'Oh, Eleanor!' she cried. "'I have such a secret to tell you about Marianne. I am sure she will be married to Mr. Willoughby very soon.' "'You have said so,' replied Eleanor almost every day since they first met on High Church Down. They have not known each other a week, I believe, before you were certain that Marianne wore his picture round her neck, when it turned out to be only the miniature of our great uncle. But indeed, this is quite another thing. I am sure they will be married very soon, for he has got a lock of her hair. Take care, Margaret. It may be only the hair of some great uncle of his. But indeed, Eleanor, it is Marianne's. I'm almost sure it is, for I saw him cut it off. Last night after tea, when you and Mama went out of the room, they were whispering and talking together as fast as could be, and he seemed to be begging something of her. And presently he took up her scissors and cut off a long lock of her hair, for it was all tumbled down her back, and he kissed it and folded it up in a piece of white paper and put it into his pocketbook. For such particulars stated on such authority, Eleanor could not withhold her credit, nor was she disposed to it, for the circumstance was in perfect unison with what she had heard and seen herself. Margaret's sagacity was not always displayed in a way so satisfactory to her sister. When Mrs. Jennings attacked her one evening at the park to give the name of the young man who was Eleanor's particular favorite, which had long been a matter of great curiosity to her, Margaret answered by looking at her sister and saying, "'I must not tell. May I, Eleanor?' This, of course, made everybody laugh, and Eleanor tried to laugh, too, but the effort was painful. She was convinced that Margaret had fixed on a person whose name she could not bear with composure to become a standing joke with Mrs. Jennings. Marianne felt for her most sincerely, but she did more harm than good to the cause by turning very red and saying in an angry manner to Margaret, "'Remember that whatever your conjectures may be, you have no right to repeat them.' I never had any conjectures about it, replied Margaret. It was you who told me of it yourself. This increased the mirth of the company, and Margaret was eagerly pressed to say something more. Oh, pray, Miss Margaret, let us know all about it, said Mrs. Jennings. What is the gentleman's name? 
I must not tell, ma'am, but I know very well what it is, and I know where he is, too. Yes, yes, we can guess where he is, at his own house in Norland, to be sure. He is the curate of the parish, I dare say. No, that he is not. He is of no profession at all. Margaret, said Marianne with great warmth, you know that all this is an invention of your own, and there is no such person in existence. Well, then, he is lately dead, Marianne, for I am sure there was such a man once, and his name begins with an F. Most grateful did Eleanor feel to Lady Middleton for observing at this moment that it rained very hard, though she believed the interruption to proceed less from any attention to her than from her ladyship's great dislike of all such inelegant subjects of raillery as delighted her husband and mother. The idea, however, started by her was immediately pursued by Colonel Brandon, who was on every occasion mindful of the feelings of others, and much was said on the subject of rain by both of them. Willoughby opened the pianoforte and asked Marianne to sit down to it, and thus amidst the various endeavors of different people to quit the topic, it fell to the ground. But not so easily did Eleanor recover from the alarm into which it had thrown her. A party was formed this evening for going on the following day to see a very fine place about twelve miles from Barton, belonging to a brother-in-law of Colonel Brandon, without whose interest it could not be seen, as the proprietor, who was then abroad, had left strict orders on that head. The grounds were declared to be highly beautiful, and Sir John, who was particularly warm in their praise, might be allowed to be a tolerable judge, for he had formed parties to visit them at least twice every summer for the last ten years. They contained a noble piece of water, a sail on which was to form a great part of the morning's amusement. Cold provisions were to be taken, open carriages only to be employed, and everything conducted in the usual style of a complete party of pleasure. To some few of the company, it appeared rather a bold undertaking, considering the time of year, and that it had rained every day for the last fortnight, and Mrs. Dashwood, who had already a cold, was persuaded by Eleanor to stay at home. The Rowan Tree Collection is created and produced by Rhea Boltice. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or review. For more information, you can visit us on Twitter at Rowan Podcast. Check out our Facebook page, The Rowan Tree Collection. Visit us on Instagram at The Rowan Tree Collection. Or, if you want to support our show, follow us on Patreon at The Rowan Tree Collection. For links to all of those and more, visit our website, shows.acast.com slash the-rowan-tree-collection. Or you can send an email to the Rowan Tree Collection at shethedistance.com. Thanks for listening.